Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. For those of you that are new, because I know we've got lots of new listeners, uh, because this is such a special program that we have on driving in dementia, I just want to explain a little bit about who Alzheimer's Speaks is and what we're up to. Bottom line is we are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia that we're going to be able to remove the fear and the stigmas attached with memory loss. And by doing so, we're going to really be able to help people live full and purposeful lives. Together, I know we're making a difference with this disease uh, because we were recognized by ShareCare and Dr. Oz as the number one influencer online, and that never would have happened without all of you participating. Each of your little clicks and likes and shares sends a powerful message to the world, and it also shares the knowledge that we have here and that we're creating together as a group. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart for participating and for doing those little unseen little things that have such a big impact. So if you haven't shared and liked this um, episode, I encourage you to go ahead and do that while you're listening um, because, again, word needs to get out and this is a very, very important topic that we're talking about today. We want to continue to raise awareness by giving voice to all that are afflicted by this disease. And so today's show was created very special um, in order to do that. And you're going to see from the panel of guests uh, when I introduce them here in just a little bit, we've got a wide range of voices um, and passions that we're going to bring to the table regarding driving and dementia. I would also like to um, just let you know that because our panel is quite large today, we may or may not be able to take questions or comments. I will do my absolute best. Feel free to um, use the um, use the chat box if you're listening, you know, by your computer, and you can always try to call in as well. And that number is seven one four. Three six four four seven five seven. Again, that's seven one four three six four four seven 
five, seven, and then you'll have to push one so that I'll know that you're there. I also like to just recognize Alzheimer's Disease International because if people are looking for support anywhere in the world, they're going to be able to match you up with an association closest to you. And support, as we all know, is a very critical thing. Um, we also have some great um, groups on Facebook uh, that offer support from the Young Onset Group um, over in the UK to Forget Me Not and Memory People as well. If you like to be part of an online community, those are just three that um, come to come to top of mind. For studies, there's the new Tau study out. You can go to the alzheimersstudies.com or you can find them on Facebook as well. And then our wonderful friends at Coral Health who have um, adapted the Music First app. Um, again, I, I'm just so passionate about that. I like to bring that up. The Lewy Body Association, and then, of course, Norms McNamara and um, so many others are working on the Purple Angel, the global symbol for dementia. And you can find more information um, on that on my website, alzheimerspeaks.com, or, I mean, if you just Google it, it'll pop up all over the place. So... Um, I just have a couple other housekeeping things to do before we get rolling here. And because uh, I always like to highlight some other additional resources for you. And because we are dedicating this whole show to driving in dementia, I don't want to break it up midstream um, for these announcements. So I'm going to go ahead and do them now. Um, our last radio show was really quite interesting. If you haven't listened to it, we had the Young Onset Group from the UK on. Fascinating um, conversation about what life is like with the disease. Our next radio show will be on the 31st with Sherry Snelling and Diana Wayne. And Sherry has written um, wonderful books. She She's a host of TV shows. She's just an incredible, incredible person. And Diana has um, written a really small but powerful book called I Was Thinking, and it's about unlocking the door um, to successful conversations um, with those that have cognitive loss. And then today at 3, we're going to be doing our Dementia Chats webinar, which is free, and I've put that in the chat box, the link to that. Feel free to join us. And my guess is this conversation, driving and dementia, is going to continue on that platform, probably just with a different sphere of people. So you're all welcome to join us there. On the blog, there were a couple of posts that I think were really powerful. Um, Max Wallach, the, you know, the young um, man who's 17 and in college and looking for a cure for Alzheimer's, has published a book with his co-author, Carolyn Given called Why Did Grandma Put Her Underwear in the Refrigerator? And it is an absolutely fantastic book. It's one of the best books out there by far for children, and it has lessons for all of us. There's also a piece um, from the <clears throat> Alzheimer's Prevention and Research Foundation that has a clip on music therapy. And then I'm so proud that on Sunday, KSTP featured Alzheimer's Speaks on a feature and um, we've just been getting a wonderful, wonderful response to that. So if you're interested in seeing that, uh, you, can, uh, you can also go to the website. 
and over to the blog and click on that. And very last announcement that I want to make, I have to do a shout-out to Two Sisters Embroidery. They just sent me in the mail a bib for my mother who is in her end stages of Alzheimer's disease, and it's so cute. And it has her name written across the chest, and then it's also written in her lap so she can see her name printed. And I, I can't wait to give it to her this afternoon. So um, a very neat idea, um, great for conversations, for people not to have an excuse to know who they're talking to and addressing them in the proper form. So let's get rolling with the show today. Um, I believe it's going to be one of the most powerful shows that we've ever done here on Alzheimer's Speaks. And as I've mentioned, our topic is driving in dementia. It's a topic that people rarely come to agreement on. In fact, I often hear and see families and professionals struggle with this topic when it's brought up. Before I start introducing our fabulous panel, I first have to let you know how this program came to be. My friend and fellow advocate, Michael Ellenbogen, um, took the topic of dementia and driving and ran with it. Michael worked diligently to investigate and interview multiple people to secure this wonderful and diverse panel that we're able to bring you today. Um, Michael has a physician who will be joining us in about an hour, uh, someone from the insurance industry, someone who was a state patrol for many years and now has um, educational programs on driving. We've got uh, caregivers and then, of course, we have several people living with the disease. So, you know, bottom line, we just really need to have this discussion. And uh, there's so many myths and there's, there's so many questions that people struggle with. You know, should I drive? Shouldn't I drive? Who can make this decision? Is it fair? Am I insurable? Um, these are all things that people ponder. In fact, I had a good friend last night um, who is concerned with his memory call to say he was in an accident and he's decided he's gonna, going to go in for testing. And, you know, these are things that happen. Was the accident, did it have anything to do with his memory loss or not? Um, probably not. But, it, you know, it's all coming to a head here. So um, I'm going to first pull in Michael to let him kind of set the stage. And um, Michael is an advocate. Um, he is a, a powerful, powerful resource to us all and uh, just an incredible man who um, is 54 years old. He was diagnosed at the age of 49. Yes, I said 49, and Michael, you know, had to leave his high-level management job in information technology. Nowadays, Michael spends most of his time just trying to increase awareness of this disease, and he works um, just constantly making connections. He's also authored a book about his experience. Michael, welcome today. Well, thank you for having me, Lori, and I have to thank you very, very much for taking and having the courage to put something like this on your show, which so many people out there have really, to this date, have really tried to stay away from uh, because of concerns 
of repercussions and so forth. So I commend you for doing this. Well, you know, Alzheimer's Speaks was developed to give voice. And, you know, in my eyes, there's not a right or a wrong. It just is. And we need to have these important conversations. Um, what was it that that got you so strong so strong in stance in terms of feeling that we need these conversations? Can you give our audience an example of of what you were feeling or what you were hearing from others on why it's so important? Well, most recently, which really drove me to realize that a show was needed and education was needed on this was, I guess probably uh, months ago, I happened to be on a website where there was a blog going on, and there was, I guess, a daughter who was questioning the fact of why her father was still allowing her mother to still continue to drive because she was given a diagnosis of dementia. And I saw about 25 different emails, and all these people were replying, well, you got to get her off the road right away. You know, the insurance companies aren't going to going to pay if she gets in an accident. Uh, you're, you know, you're going to get sued. But not one person asked the question, well, is there anything actually wrong with her driving? And it was just so aggravating to see something like that. And... I've done a lot of investigation myself, and I know how you know insurance companies do pay for it because I checked into that for myself, and we can get into that later. But I realized a lot of these people were just going by bad information that was being shared from one person to another, and nobody's really truly doing the homework to find out what are the real rules and regulations. So I thought it was really needed for the caregivers and the people dealing with the disease and even, to be honest with you, doctors and others to understand what's really going on out there to hopefully improve the process. Well, I think those are are fabulous points, and hopefully our discussion is going to get people thinking a little bit more about the misconceptions and being willing to share what it is we learned today. And, And Lord knows. I'll be the first to say, we do not and will not have all the answers for you. We're just here to deliver more information and to have you um, think maybe in a little little different way than what you once did. We need to figure out how are our communities going to address transportation needs for those living with dementia. You know, what are the laws and how are they going to affect not just a person with dementia, but everybody? Are there laws out there? We don't really even know. And when it comes to testing, who decides? And and, it, and are the current tests valid and fair? So these are some of the things that we're going to kind of ponder today along with hearing from people. What are the signs that they struggle with as a person living with the disease about driving? Because this is, is extremely controversial. If uh, Steve Ponath was with us today, he would tell us the story of his friend who was a dear, dear friend that just told him he could not drive and he had no right to. And you know, the guy didn't really know anything about him other than Steve said, I got diagnosed. That was as far as it went. And so there's a lot of judgment going on, and it's going to be a very, very interesting conversation that I can promise you. 
Um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with um, Matt Gural and pull him in first. And I'm going to introduce people as we go. Otherwise, you know, we'll just get bombarded with things. And Matt is the founder and CEO of Keeping Us Safe. And his mission is to provide strategies and guidance to seniors that will help them continue driving safely until um, until a decision is made for them to retire from their driving career. And I and I love that phrase, retire. It's not being revoked. It's not being taken away. Um, they're just retiring from a driving career. He provides an excellent array of services and resources for both families and professionals that are dealing with this extremely sensitive issue. Now, Matt's background was that he had a successful 24-year career as an assistant district commander with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. And you can only imagine what he saw during during his his career there. Um, Matt, when asked, you know, what is his ultimate motivation for um, starting his company, Keeping Us Safe, says there's never one particular event that triggered this. It was a result of 20 years of holding dying people in his arms from terrible car accidents and having to deliver dozens and dozens of death notifications. I'd much rather work with families to bring a peaceful resolve to a sensitive and uncomfortable issue now rather than to deal with the knock of a state patrol at their door. Um, I just, that just brings shivers through me, and I think most of our listeners can understand and appreciate that that is one of our deepest worries with that. So, Matt, I'm going to go ahead and um, pose a couple of questions to you. But first, again, I have to thank you for taking the time to join us today on the show. So, so welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you, Maureen. Um, it's an honor to be here. Well, great. If you can share with us um, a little bit more just about your passion to help older adults driving and, you know, dealing with losing some of their, their skills as a result of the aging process, um, how, do you, how, do you reach, how do you reach people? How do, you, how do you even contact them? Or do they find you? Well, uh, hopefully they will find us. Uh, and hopefully you're going to help me accomplish that through this radio program. But uh, all kidding aside, we provide services just like you described, uh, typically on behalf of um, concerned adult children that are worried about mom or dad's ability to drive any longer for whatever reason, whether it be Alzheimer's, dementia, or just the natural aging process. And then what, what we do is uh, sit down with the older driver and go through a three-hour, what we call a self-assessment program, where we bring a basket of tools to the table, uh, meet with the older driver in the comfort and confidence of their own home. Uh, typically, we like to say these are performed at the older driver's kitchen table. And uh, we go through a, a whole litany of exercises and uh and a very lengthy, what we call a learning conversation, so that we can learn more about uh, why this individual thinks that he or she is a good driver or why they think they might not be a good driver. 
And uh, then we actually go out and do a driving exercise as well, Lori. And then what happens is um, toward the end of our session, we work with the older driver to come up with what we call a mutually agreed upon plan of action for their driving future. So they're not actually being told that they need to give up driving or that they are okay to continue driving. We develop a plan together that is in their best interest. Now, sometimes, Lori, that might mean a complete retirement from driving, um, unfortunately. And when that's the case, then we, we explain that to them. But ultimately, it's still their decision and the family's decision to make at the end of the day. And by presenting it to them this way, by framing it uh, in this particular manner, uh, the older driver is much more um, likely to make the right decisions because they're put in a position, like I described, where they're the decision maker. Um, a driving retirement is not being forced upon them. So oftentimes, a driver that does need to retire from driving will see this as an opportunity to do so and still maintain their, uh, their independence, their dignity, and their personal pride. And plus, they take 100% ownership in the decisions that are made because they were involved in the process. Okay. Because I, I think most of us have this feeling, you know, when we think maybe maybe it's time. And um, so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to kind of switch formats a little bit because I'd like to get the voice of those with dementia um, involved in this conversation, Matt. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put you on hold. Michael, I'm going to put you on first. And if you wouldn't mind just sharing with our audience, um, what, what are some things that that you worry about with your driving now that you have this diagnosis, or does it not bother you at all? Well, it definitely bothers me, Lori, and uh, it it all actually started when I had originally gotten tested, I guess, back uh, in 2008 uh, by uh, the folks at NIH, and uh, they had told me at that point in time that I should stop driving. And we asked them, and my wife asked them, well, did I fail the test? And they said, no, but somewhere along the lines you might fail the test. So because of that, I slowly started questioning my own driving. Uh, and I started losing my self-esteem as far as driving. Uh, so that kind of uh, created a problem. And because they told my wife the same things, well, my wife started becoming concerned about it. So... She was starting to look at my driving, picking at my driving. So over time, I actually became, I guess, slowly declining in my own driving skills just because people around me were saying things. So I was really concerned that I was starting to have problems with driving, even though I really didn't, didn't at the time. So what happened was I, I had to prove to myself, did I really have an issue or did I not have an issue? So I had decided that, I was going to drive uh, a long distance, which was uh, going to go to my daughter in South Carolina, and I, I was able to prove to myself after driving, and I, I built my confidence back up, and at the same time, I realized that there wasn't anything wrong. So I asked my wife, I said, is there anything really wrong with my driving? Why do you feel this way about me? And she says, well, no, this is just what the doctors have been saying. And I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, you know, like the, the other people have told her, well, you you know, the insurance company might not pay for it and everything, so 
I said, well, let's address it. Let's go to the insurance company. So she went to the insurance company, and she asked the insurance company and told them about the situation, and they came back and said, no, we will take care of it. I said, that's what insurance is for. That's the whole purpose of insurance. So it's amazing, and I start feeling so much better. And even since then, I've been doing so much more driving, and I feel so much better. Now, I will tell you, I have had to change a little bit of my structure in my driving today. I know I do drive a little bit slower, and I, I should quantify that, you know, when I say slower, because I used to be one of those guys who used to drive 90 miles an hour. So <laughs> now I drive normally. And, uh-huh. yes, I, you know, I, I do allow a lot more space between me and the person in front of me because sometimes I just don't feel as comfortable. But you know what? The space I do allow is probably what they recommend to have – so many car links between you and the person. So I'm probably following the law of what I should be doing. So Which, I'm no longer tailgating that person anymore or, or being right on their you know tail when I'm driving. And my wife isn't used to that. And she goes, why are you so far behind? I said, I said, is there something wrong with being careful? And she just says, no. So it's like, you know, our expectations are because we're seeing people d- drive differently I think I'm just being more cautious today. And, yes, I do have my days that I feel that maybe I should not be driving. And when I have those days that I feel a little bit out of focus, I stay away from behind the wheel. Okay. Great. Well, I I love this conversation, and I appreciate uh, all of your comments. And I think it is really important when – because it happens to all of us, not just on this topic, but everything, that – People make comments, it gets into our head, and it changes our perception and makes us think. And when those comments come from somebody who we respect, such as a doctor, and hold in esteem, you know, they have a little bit more power. And we really have to be able to to analyze things for ourselves as well. I, I want to pull in Mary next. So thank you, Michael. I'm going to go ahead and mute you. I'm going to pull Mary in next. And Mary Bailey was diagnosed at the age of 58 with early onset Alzheimer's disease. And that was just about a year ago. Mary was a former president and CEO of Bailey and Associates, and she's now retired due to health reasons. And she still says she's in the process of adapting to life with this disease. Mary gave up driving about seven months after her diagnosis, and I want her to share with us kind of the what's and how's and why's of this very difficult decision. Now, you also have to know a little bit of history about Mary. Her father had vascular dementia, and the kids in the family were all in denial about his driving ability. That is, until he became seriously lost and ran out of gas about 60 miles from his home. He was lost, they think, for about 9 to 10 hours. And luckily, there were alert strangers that found him wandering in the neighborhood and were kind enough to offer their help. They found the family's phone number in his glove box, and Mary's family felt especially blessed that he wasn't hurt, a little shaken up, um, but he didn't get in an accident, and he didn't hurt himself or anyone else. Even though her dad was exhausted and probably emotionally compromised from that experience, 
he was still in denial about his driving abilities, and they had to physically, as a family, remove his car. Her dad is approaching 90 years of age and at that time and was still, this whole deal was still so traumatic for that loss of independence. And to watch that, and I know that so many families struggle with this. How do we do this? People take the keys, they remove the batteries, um, they jimmy-rig things, they say the car's in the shop. Um, some physically remove the car, trying to figure out routes around this. This is a real issue, um, the, the denial thing, and then how do you deal with it? And how do we allow people to be part of this choice? So needless to say, Mary Bailey is much younger, um, but she wants you know, to be part of this decision-making process. And so, Mary, can uh, thank you so much for, for being part of this show and being willing to share your story with us. How difficult was it for you to make that decision to stop driving? Hi, Lori. Thanks uh, for having me. Um, it, it, was, it was hard. It's, it, in fact, it's still hard. Um, I... Uh, I become much more kind of isolated in my house and and I'm working on on methods of of dealing with that. Uh for me, I uh I was concerned because I am my while my son lives with me, I'm still kind of my own caregiver in the sense of monitoring my own behavior and because he is at work a good deal of the time and um I was very concerned that I would pass a level where I was a danger to someone else and no one would recognize it. Um, and so it was kind of, you know, some heavy self-monitoring where I thought, you know, if I'm the only if I'm the only person making the decision, maybe I need to err on the side of caution. And so that's uh, when I decided to give up driving was about, uh, I think it was, five months ago about, and uh, I had gotten lost again. I'd been lost a number of times um, over the course of a couple of years, but I'd gotten lost again even with the GPS and uh, sort of panicked. And I'd noticed other little things like, you know, cars felt like they were coming out of nowhere sometimes, uh, uh, things like that. And uh and 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 sounds would be very distracting. Something from the radio might sound like a a siren or something, and and my reaction was not as quick as it used to be. And so, I kind of decided maybe to pull myself off the road. Um, and I think part of it was because of my father. Is is seeing how at a certain point you just um, maybe don't see that you have an issue. And, and I was afraid that I could go quite a while with uh, no one watching me and, and have something that I would regret for the rest of my life, which I really don't need right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I guess that's, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. No, that that makes perfect sense and i think <clears throat> i think uh you know one of the things that i think per- perception wise is with the disease is that a person with the disease can't make a logical decision and to me i mean 
you're making a very logical, impactful decision and, and have analyzed the pros and the cons of what this what the impact of this decision means to you and to those around you. And and I think that that's a very important factor for people to understand as well, is just because you have the disease <clears throat> doesn't mean that you automatically can't be part of the decision-making factors in your life. And so <clears throat> I thank you for for sharing for sharing with us. I'll pull you back in a little later, but I want to hear from a couple others as well. And so I'm going to go next and pull in um Kathy Murray. And Kathy um has kind of an interesting uh story herself. Kathy was diagnosed in 2009 at the age of 57. And she is now in the process of being evaluated for possible change in her diagnosis that it might be Lewy body, which is not uncommon for things to kind of shift and shake um, with dementia. Kathy is an alumni of the National Early Stage Advisory Group as well as an alumni of her regional Early Stage Advisory Group. She's also working with the governor of Pennsylvania's task force on Alzheimer's. Kathy has currently um, chosen to limit her driving to about a 10-mile radius, and I would love for Kathy to, to tell us how she came to be, uh, how, how she came to make that decision. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Um, Lori, for me, you... driving has has always been an intricate part of um, of my past career. I was uh, in senior management and banking and was responsible for a division in Delaware and in Baltimore, Maryland, which is about about a two hour and forty five minute drive from where I currently live, so I was frequently in Baltimore um, every week for three or four days, so I made the trip by myself downtown Baltimore and would frequently uh, work with other financial institutions because I was on the task force that did uh, mergers and acquisitions, so I was frequently traveling the Mid-Atlantic route to uh, evaluate other banks that we were seeking to acquire. After the diagnosis, I continued to drive, but I started to notice that when I would come out of shopping centers, I would forget where my car was. And I think the pivotal point for me was one day I had come out of a shopping center and I absolutely could not find my car. And I, I felt like I was, I wouldn't call it a panic attack, but I, I just felt very anxious. And I absolutely had no clue where my car was. Thank goodness um, a, a security officer was out, and I think he, he saw me panicking and wanted to know what was going on. And, and even to try to describe my car at that point, I couldn't even describe my car. Uh, I Fortunately, I had a cell phone, and I was able to call my husband and uh, my, through my husband talking with him, describe the car and uh, was able to help me find the car. Of course, he used the key. I couldn't even remember to use the key, the panic button on the key to 
locate the car. Uh, but that was that was an eye-opening event for me, and uh, certainly it alarmed my husband as well. I well, never I had can... another incident quite as scary as that one, but I have had frequent incidences of coming out of a store and not knowing whether to go left or go right to even find my car. So I made the decision some time ago to just limit my driving to about a 10-mile radius of my home because we live on uh, off of a, a, a highway and a highway and on a north-south route. And just about everything I need is within that 10-mile radius, and, and I don't have to make a lot of turns and things of that sort. So the major concern that I have today is if my grandchildren are with me and if they're in the car, if something happens, if I make a a mistake or something like that. Um, We did pick up our granddaughter from school last year, and it got to the point that uh, my husband, who is now retired, that we would pick her up together just for that reason that I I started to feel no longer safe. And that was self-imposed, not that anything happened. I think it was more out of a protection mode that what if something did happen while I was driving? I would never forgive myself uh, if my grandchildren, one of the grandchildren, were was in the vehicle with me. So those are kind of that's some of the background that's uh, why I really limit my driving at this point. Well, I thank you for sharing. Uh, you, you brought up some great points that I, uh, I I definitely want to discuss a little bit further in the conversation, and that is, you know, when you do get disoriented, um, should people have a description of their car on them um, so that they can help, uh, you know, have help finding their vehicle, and then also kind of that emergency contact information to be able to make the connection. Because one of the things that I think uh, so many people don't understand is that when there is confusion or stress or overstimulation, um, that can just heighten the confusion. And, you know, you might be going along just fine, and then all of a sudden, you know, something happens, and it might be somebody hit you, and you were driving just fine, but that's going to throw any of us for a loop, but when you've got dementia, it's really going to throw people a curveball, and so we have to kind of figure out ways to to be safe, and, um, you know, I love that people are talking about the retirement and the self-restriction. It's much more, I think, empowering. I think it's easier on, on everybody as a whole. Um, I know Steve Poneth, who's not able to be with us today, um, talked with his family and had a discussion about his driving. And he really respects his neurologist, but some others that are giving him advice he wasn't so thrilled with. So he decided, and I think this is a great thing, and I've heard Benny do this, to sit down and write, this is when I want you, my family, to take my license you know, to pull the keys from me. And then he listed things out. And he's actually going to go another step, though he's unable to do that right now. He's taking care of his his own parents um, with some health crisis, is he wants to make a video of himself 
saying these things. Um, and the purpose of that is twofold. One, so that it can be shown to him and hopefully he'll recognize it, um, that he'll still be able to grasp that, that this was his decision. And two, to help alleviate the stress that um, it can be caused uh, to the family members because this is not an easy an easy topic to, to approach. So thank you so much for, um, for sharing um, your insights there with us. I'm going to go ahead and pull in Terry next. And um, Terry stopped driving on her own just about a year ago. And she was one of those people, she describes herself as a love to be on the go, go, go. And um, she was never afraid of anything. She would just venture off somewhere. And since the diagnosis of dementia, she's noticed a difference. And there's kind of a progression on um, on how she is now handling things. So, so Terry, if you wouldn't mind, again, welcome to the show, uh, sharing with us why you decided to kind of pull back and stop on your own. Okay. Um, well, I decided about it was January last year, 2012, that um, the decision was kind of made to stop driving and it was made brought to the head, I think, with my neurologist. Um, but prior to that, from maybe 2011 through 2012, um, I noticed my own changes in my driving. I wasn't venturing off as far. Um, I was making less trips from Richmond up to Manassas, which is about a two-hour drive to my family. Um, and I felt myself being much more cautious. I wasn't on that autopilot, that comfortable autopilot that you are on when you're driving. Um, most of us are on um, and became, so I knew that um, there must, you know, be a reason connected to the dementia that I was becoming, feeling uncomfortable. And, you know, a, a big truck came along next to me and would kind of startle me. Um, or, you know, somebody blowing their horn. Just things that were not reactions I normally would have had. Um, so once I moved up to Manassas with my daughter, um, I just started limiting my driving very local, down the one street that goes one way and back, and the stores are there. I don't have any problem with getting lost um, or finding my way, but um, I knew that my driving was not what it should be. And then when um, I went to the neurologist for my update on January 2012, um, she had asked me some questions about my driving and things like that, and we kind of discussed it. She pretty much said, you know, you need to stop driving. If you don't make this decision on your own with your family, then she would have to intervene, but kind of left it that she was hoping we would make the correct decision. Um, and in all honesty, after that, I did still drive. <laughs> um, <laughs> but only <laughs> only maybe about a two-block radius um, because the senior center's nearby, so if it was a really hot or rainy day or whatever, I would drive to the senior center um, and I probably did that for about another two months. And at one day um, on my way home, just in that two-block radius, um, I had pulled over. Um, so I, I forget why. Somebody, I think, may have called me on my cell phone or something. I pulled over. And then when I went to pull back out to go back up our street, I almost sideswiped someone. I didn't see them. And it just I realized then, I do not need to be on the road. This is dangerous for me, for others. You know, God forbid if, you know, a child jumped out and 
that's just the time when my reaction is not working properly. Um, now even riding in a car, I'm, they call me I'm the backseat rider because <laughs> sitting in the front, I literally cannot watch where we're going or what's going on because I get startled very easily, like somebody's pulling out and I'll shout to my kids, you know, oh, watch out. <laughs> and so they're, okay, Mom, don't look at, don't look up like <laughs> put blinders on you. So <laughs> it's quite interesting. Um, so I think just as it evolved, as the disease process probably evolved, I realized that the process of retiring my driving was evolving. And, and I didn't take it very badly because I'm not sure if it's because of the apathy part of this disease that made it kind of more muted. It didn't devastate me because mm-hmm. I know in hindsight, if I think back in the year 2000, if somebody told me I would not be able to drive a car, that would have been totally devastating because I was go, go, go all the time. Wow. Well, I, thank you so much for sharing, Terry. I, I think it's important, too, to, to bring up your personality style because that is mm-hmm. a huge factor. I mean, I, I joke for myself, I don't like bringing my car in for an oil change because I don't like giving up <laughs> the control for for that 20 minutes. And so, I, you know, I, I don't know how I will do if I have to make that decision. Um, I would like to think that I'll be responsible in terms of doing it. But, you know, it it's such a big piece of who we are. And, um, you know, next what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to call in um, Jack Schatz. And Jack is a caregiver for his wife who was diagnosed with dementia at the age of 60. And he his goal was to keep her behind the wheel as long as possible even if his kids were objecting to it. And Jack felt it was very important for his wife to be who she was for as long as possible. Now, some may say it's denial. Others may say it's a convenience to allow a person with dementia to drive. And some may say this makes total sense. So today I'm looking forward to hearing from Jack and his thoughts and to find out what the signs were that, you know, finally made it clear uh, to to he and his family um, regarding the keys. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. It's, it's good to be there. Um, actually, driving was part of the... Um, kind of the overall perspective on this disease, there, there really seem to be uh, two approaches. One is to be proactive and the other is to be reactive. Uh, my, my kids really wanted to be proactive to uh, take away some of my wife's activities before problems popped up. Um, I, on the other hand, felt that it was important to be reactive because my wife, who herself uh, had an incredible career as a, a psychotherapist in private practice, she was president and then chairman of a of an educational foundation that gave grants and scholarships to women who wanted to continue their education, uh, and she was also a head of the head of programming as an, an employed position with Gilda's Club around the country. So, uh, highly competent, incredibly qualified, and when it became cl- when the diagnosis was administered, uh, it became clear that there were going to be some large changes in her life 
One, she could no longer conduct her practice of psychotherapy. She could no longer qualify for malpractice insurance. Uh, the potential for uh, difficulties were, were, were uh, really quite manifold. She was, however, uh, still fully capable of driving, getting herself around, and, and certainly selfishly, um, it made my life a lot easier to know that she was able to uh, to get herself from one place to another, to go food shopping, run errands, and do all of those things, especially in light of the fact that her calendar, which used to be jam-packed with uh, professional activities and other things, uh, suddenly became totally empty. Uh, and, and so the, the notion of keeping, allowing her to maintain her sense of, someone earlier had said, self-esteem, her sense of identity, who she was, um, was, was incredibly important. And so I felt to strip that away would be just uh, uh, incredibly devastating at the time. What uh, ultimately uh, made uh, the difference were two things. One is uh, a minor accident that she was involved in where she rear-ended a car in front of her at a, at a stoplight. She was distracted, whatever. Uh, some amount of damage to our car, which we uh, did not report to either the police or to um, uh, or to the insurance company, and fortunately the car that she hit wasn't damaged, but, but we repaired our car. And then the second, and we said, you know, hey, you got to watch it. Uh, at that point, we had her stop driving on major highways or driving for long distances. The second thing that happened, which was the, the, uh, the final uh, uh, situation, was that she was returning from a local supermarket after doing some food shopping, and my wife claimed that a van that was coming towards her on the, on the opposite direct, from the opposite direction made a, a left turn in front of her without signaling and caused a head-on collision. Luckily, uh, no one was hurt, although our car, the car my wife was driving, was completely totaled. Uh, and so that became a clear opportunity to say, enough, no more driving, no more car, we're not going to replace it, we're going to cancel her insurance, cancel her driver's license. Uh, and 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 uh, although from time to time, you know, she sort of wistfully looks at the the car keys or would sit in the car and said, you know, I really could be doing this. And as much as I would love her to run some of those errands that I'd rather uh, not run if I didn't have to, um, it became clear that uh, that that was time. She is certainly capable enough to to take advantage of public transportation, and we live in New Jersey, just outside of Manhattan, and there's a a bus route that goes right in front of our house and uh, and takes my wife into New York City uh, and drops her off at the Port Authority bus terminal, and she can then take taxis uh, at that point. So she she is still uh, pretty much mobile, but uh, absolutely no more driving, and, uh, and, and I think the world is right to say, uh, no license, no insurance, you know, and and it helps me to tell her that the reason she's not driving is not simply my decision, but um, no insurance coverage, and if she hurts herself or someone else, it could absolutely be the the end of us financially. So mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you know, that's a pretty powerful argument. That's a very very powerful argument, and a perfect segue for the the next person that I want to want to introduce. Um how I have to ask how did your wife take um this decision? Was was she comfortable with all of this? Not not comfortable with any of it going through a very luckily um the uh, the decline is very very gradual. We're really lucky so far, you know, subject to change without notice. Mm -hmm. But um 
you know, um, as a person who is a trained psychotherapist, um, she knows what the end game is. She knows what others, you know, what to anticipate. And um, there's a uh, an interesting mourning process that uh, mourning the end of her of her for herself really. Uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, there is a hospital just a few blocks, literally within walking distance of where we live. And so uh, my wife walked down and saw the head of volunteerism at the hospital, brought her, um, brought her resume with her. The woman said, um, why do you want to volunteer? We could hire you on a you know, per diem basis to, to do therapy among our patient population. And uh, I then handed her an application, and it became clear that there was no way that if she filled out the application honestly that uh, you know, she would be uh, allowed to work there. So uh, mm-hmm. I went back and, and, and asked the woman, you know, said, here's why you haven't heard from my wife, because, uh, you know, one, she has been diagnosed, but still very early stage, and there must be some other things that, that she could do, having been trained in, in hospital environments. And, and the hospital, to their not credit, said, uh, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, policy, policy the hospital, we ain't going to go there, thank you. Uh-huh. And, and, that, and I think... Uh, at this point, as much as driving is an issue, uh, the, the world of volunteerism, which allows people who are still clearly in, in the very early stages, who could make uh, significant contributions to the world, feel very good about themselves, uh, you know, help others still, uh, that, that that possibility has essentially been taken off the table. And I think that, as much as driving, uh, is, a, is, a, is a huge, huge uh, issue. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much um, for for sharing with us. I, I just think everybody's stories are, are just so, so powerful. Next, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull in J.D. Howard. And J.D. is the Executive Director of Insurance Consumer Advocate Network. And he, um, he began his career with Allstate Insurance Company, and he completed their claims training program and his paralegal training. J.D. has done a variety of things and has had great experience with claims adjusting, defense litigation uh, supervision. Uh, He's an author, a lecturer. He's been an expert witness, um, plaintiff uh, litigation consultant. He's a talk show host and um, was the executive director of the National Collision and Repair Association. So welcome, J.D. Um, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing just fine, and it's a privilege to be with you, Miss LeBay. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. There are so many myths and rumors um, regarding insurance and driving, and I'm going to ask you kind of a silly question, but prior to the conversation of even Michael approaching you, um, you know, to do this show, what was your thought if somebody was to ask you, should a person with dementia be driving, what was your initial reaction to that? My, my knee-jerk reaction was no, but that was simply because uh, I did not have an understanding of various stages of dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, I knew that uh, finally uh, President Reagan succumbed to it when he was in his 90s, and that was about my experience. I had handled a few claims that involved 
uh, are policyholders with AD. And sadly, uh, like Matt Burrow, uh, I was involved in situations that resulted in fatalities, so I had an emotional reaction to it. As I've been listening to your guests on the show, and especially Matt, I'm so impressed with uh, the program that he is running. But then also the stories of uh, not only Michael, but Mary, Kathy, Terry, and Jack. I'm getting a better understanding of the uh, how Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, not how it starts necessarily, but how it progresses, how insidious it is, and how gradual it is, which in my mind now raises the question, where is the line beyond which... uh, uh, victims or uh, dementia patients should not cross relative to their car keys, and that's why I'm so impressed with the program that Matt is putting together. Great. Well, I, I appreciate your honesty, and I and I wanted to kind of put you on the hot seat in terms of you know what was your thought prior to listening, because because I think most people's um, opinion is going to change. By listening to this show, I think there's a great deal of knowledge coming through in terms of of looking at what this disease is like. I mean, so many people are shocked that somebody with dementia can be driving because everyone thinks if you have dementia, you're in a wheelchair and you can't talk and you're at the end of your life. And that's not true. (laughs) Well, I've spent the last 20 years of my life in a wheelchair, but I still think uh, I have a pretty good handle on what I'm doing. (laughs) You know, you're you're putting me in mind of uh, an experience that my wife and I shared, oh, six, seven years ago when we were living in Branson, Missouri. She left to drive up to Springfield to do some specialty shopping. She was gone for several hours, uh, and it wasn't until it was about uh, seven to eight hours uh, after she had left Branson, we got a phone call from a convenience store clerk in St. Louis. Uh, That's where my wife was. So, thank you very much. Nailed her shoes down. I got your address. Let her know we're on her way. And if she doesn't have the money, go ahead and sell her what she needs on credit. I'll cover it when I get to her. And since then, we have moved to Springfield. Now, my wife has never been diagnosed, but as I'm listening to the stories your guests have been sharing with you, I'm beginning to wonder whether or not uh, she may be on that same path. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, it is it is an awakening, you know, this, this whole process. I remember even with my mom when she was in the middle stages of the disease, and uh, we were, it was Christmas time, I'd been working a zillion hours trying to, you know, prepare, and I really wanted to sleep in, but the family wanted to get going up to the lake. And so my husband took another vehicle ahead because we were ice fishing and snowmobiling and all of that kind of stuff. So he he drove that vehicle, and I had this big conversion fan. And we were about 20 minutes, it was like a two-hour drive, 20 minutes before the cabin, and I fell asleep at the wheel. Oh, and my. 
And my mom was in the front seat and my teenage daughter was in the back. And I still thought that my mom knew danger. I mean, I really thought she knew that. And I learned through this experience she didn't have a clue. You know, I slapped down a couple of signs and, you know, ripped a wheel off and we were extremely lucky and nobody got hurt. But she sat in the car with a smile on her face and my daughter screaming. Oh, that going, was fun. Can we do it again? Going, you couldn't have fallen asleep. And I'm like, I did. I was tired. It just takes a second. So, sure. you know, from, from caregivers, I mean, we have to be careful, too, that we don't get stretched. But I, you don't, sometimes we don't know until we're in those situations, really, how how things are going to play out. And that was a big that was a huge turning point for me because I, my mom's social skills were so good that I, I really thought she was more connected and able to make those judgment calls, and and she she was not. Um, with that, I am going to see right now if um, I am looking for Dr. Wiseman, and I don't know if he's on the call yet. I've got somebody with a different number than I thought he was going to call in from. So, Dr. Wiseman, if you are on in the studio, if you can please just push one, and I will know that you are there. Um, otherwise, I am going to go ahead and um, throw this back to Michael at this point, and uh, let me get you uh, live here, Michael. You are now live. What are your thoughts so far with the conversation, Michael? Well, I, I'm very, very impressed with uh, the great, uh, I guess, conversations that are going on here. And uh, I, I'll tell you, you know, even with the program that Matt has, uh, I, I wish other programs out there were like Matt's. Uh, I've had the opportunity to actually see two different programs, and they were nothing like what Matt uh, is doing today. Uh, but I do also want to bring up something that uh, I think it's important for your listeners to understand. While there are people out there such as us, and the majority of us can make the decision I also want them to understand that not everybody can make that logical decision and self-impose, you know, various rules and regulations around driving because I have run into uh, somebody who did have AD and they thought they were very capable of driving and I actually went to their caregiver and tried to insist that they should drive until their caregiver told me, well, they did this and did this. And then when I went back to the person who had AD, they said, well, yeah, so not everybody has that logic well, you know, mm -hmm. so I think it's important that people recognize that there's the, the side that we should have some rights, and then there's sides that sometimes we need the caregiver and somebody to step in to help us out because we've lost some of that capability. So I think it's mm -hmm. important for people to realize that. Okay, wonderful. Um, I am just going to um, call in. There's uh, someone on the phone here. And on a 571 number, and I'm going to put you live because I don't know if this is my next caller. It might just be a listener. So a 571 number, you're live if you'd like to speak. If you're just calling in to listen, that is perfectly fine as well. Is there a comment that you'd like to say? Okay. Then what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to go ahead and pull in Matt. Um, Matt, you are just, uh, you know, filled with wonderful information for us. And so I'm wondering if you can share with us 
um, some of the major risk factors that can affect an older person's ability to drive safely, um, particularly those that might be suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. And again, I want to clarify that, you know, older, you know, what does that mean? Because there are people, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s um, getting this disease. I don't even think 60s and 70s is old anymore. So the older I get, the, the less that word has any power with me. So not to uh, categorize anybody, but if you can share some of the risk factors that you see that um, people with dementia um, may may uh, need to really analyze. Well, Lori, let me, uh, let me say this first. You're right about the age. Although certainly there is a, an obvious correlation between age and diminished driving abilities, um, we have absolutely no business facing uh, driving abilities strictly on age. Um, I have done, again, back to these self-assessments, I did a self-assessment with a 91-year-old gentleman that I kind of had the uh, uh, premeditated idea that maybe he shouldn't be driving any longer, long before I even met him but just because of his age. But, you know, we went through this three-hour program, and uh, as I told him at the end, I would have absolutely no problem riding um, halfway across the country with him. And then mm-hmm. at the same time, I once met with a, a much younger, a 73-year-old driver that because of um, Alzheimer's disease um, had no business even turning on the AM radio when she was driving because of the distraction just... Um, just sent her into into a whirlwind uh, driving-wise. So, you know, there is a correlation between age and driving abilities, again, but um, these uh, decisions and these conversations need to be based on facts and on skills, um, not age. age in fact, um, our, when when we do uh, an intake-type conversation to try to, we're talking to an adult, an adult child about doing a self-assessment program with their parents, um, the issue of age never even comes up. It's not something we ask because it's, okay. it's just like you said, it, 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 it is so um, irrelevant, really. Um, okay. So if, as far as warning signs, Lori, um, I, I would really like to concentrate on the whole issue of memory. You know, so much of driving, we talk about vision and a person's hearing and their reaction time, their strength and flexibility, what types of medications they're on, are they diabetic and have neuropathy in their feet. That is all very, very, very important stuff. But oftentimes, um, memory is completely overlooked in those assessments. And a lot of what we do in the self-assessment program is uh, memory-related. I mentioned that we do several tabletop-type pen and paper uh, exercises, but much of that is geared toward the memory. Um, obviously, we've heard stories here this morning already about people getting lost. And, uh, you know, it's not uncommon to pick up a newspaper somewhere across the country and read where someone has left St. Paul, Minnesota for a loaf of bread, and they find them three days later in Michigan um, mm-hmm. lost and confused. Um, and memory, uh, for all sorts of reasons, is a huge factor in driving. And that's what, um, obviously, Alzheimer's uh, victims are afflicted with is, is a decline in memory and cognitive processing and whatnot. But uh, uh, I just lost my train of thought. The uh, so memory, like I said, is something that we focus on heavily during the self-assessment program. Okay, uh, wonder. It, 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 let me add too, Lori. It can make an individual an excellent 
uh, potential for crime. Imagine being um, 80-some years old and you're lost and confused. Uh, somebody told a story earlier of the uh, of this happening, and the individual walks into a, a I live in Cleveland, um, and we have some bad parts of Cleveland, um, but walks into a PP station at 2 a.m. in a bad part of town and, and uh, gets out with his walker and, and parks sideways in the parking lot and uh, walks in and asks for directions back to Idaho. You know he's got uh, he's got uh, rob me written all over all over his back really. So memory can you know yes it affects driving but like I said it can also make you a perfect candidate for a crime. Yeah, good good point good point Matt. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and mute you and I am not sure if this is Dr. Weisman or not, um, but I'm going to go ahead and put this person live from a two one five number. You are live. This is Dr. Weisman by chance. Yes, hello. Hi, okay, Dr. Weisman. Well, let me go ahead and do your introduction. I had a different phone number down for you, so just threw me for a loop, but we're, we're good. Um, Dr. David Weisman is a neurological doctor and researcher specializing in dementia. He received his BA um, in philosophy from Franklin and Marshall College and an MD from Pennsylvania State College of Medicine. After his internship at St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco, he completed uh, his neurological study at Yale, where he served as chief resident. When he went to the University of California in San Diego for his fellowship training, um, he dealt with pathology research in Alzheimer's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies. He is a board-certified vascular uh, neurologist and has been part of a team honored with the IMSIII Award for the fastest door uh, to catheter time. Dr. Wiseman is the site PI for the clinical trials in stroke, Alzheimer's disease, and multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's. Welcome today. Um, thank you for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. Um, we've been having a fascinating conversation here, and I really wanted to pull you in to see what your thoughts are about driving um, and dementia. Do you find that families are really struggling with this with this decision? Absolutely. Um, the caregivers of people with Alzheimer's disease, if they're mild and living alone, um, they are terrified, and I see the fear on their faces, and it's a fear that comes from a lot of different vectors. One is that they are just terrified of the person getting in a car accident and the legal liabilities that can happen from that, and they're even afraid of the person's reaction to bring it up in an office meeting. So it's sort of fear upon fear, and it can be really tricky because um, around most of America, sadly, the only infrastructure that allows an older person to get around is the car. So the car equals freedom. And the way that they're getting to the grocery store, to pick up their girlfriend, boyfriend, to church, anything is dependent on their car. And without that, they are emasculated it's terrible so there's a lot of concern and it kind of gets thrown in at the very end of a conversation 
um, but it's actually the most important thing that we can talk about sometimes. Wonderful. Well, I, I, I was thinking that was going to be your answer, but you just you never know. And I think it's uh, it's good to hear from the horse's mouth what you're seeing from from your side of the desk. Um, when you uh, you know approach people on this topic, you know what are your thoughts um, in terms of when a dri- when a driver's license should be as as um, Matt so beautifully says retired. <laughs> um, well. In my experience, most humans will self-restrict their driving as appropriate, okay, um, when they're older and when they have memory difficulties. So Alzheimer's disease will rob them of memory, and they will actually limit themselves. So they'll set limits to themselves, um, and I encourage them to do so. So driving at night, driving in unfamiliar surroundings, driving on highways and bypasses. Um, in Also, my experience is that anxiety sets a very good limit. If they're worried about driving, there's a reason for that. Okay, That is most people, and I'd say that's greater than 90% of all the Alzheimer's disease people I see with driving. But sometimes, and there are rare cases where people have no insight, because the insight with this disease anyway is very variable. Some people with it have terrific insight. They say that my memory is terrible. My memory is no longer what it once was. And other people have no insight, and they actually have such a degree of loss of insight that they actually deny the illness. They will say, I don't have any memory loss. I do not have Alzheimer's disease. You tell them that they have Alzheimer's disease five minutes later, I do not have memory problems. I do not have Alzheimer's disease because, of course, they've forgotten. So mm-hmm. I've seen all the, the entire spectrum. And for those people with no insight, it's impossible. It's very difficult to set limits. And that's a person who can really represent a threat because um, they don't have the normal anxiety, right? They can be up mm-hmm. at night and they can just feel like going to the store, and then they will. In terms of the data, there are really no good studies um, that will can guide us. We know is sort of a rough rule that the worse the memory is, uh, the increased risk of accidents. But there's no firm line. And we should point out quickly, uh, on the heels of that statement, that our society accepts risk. Okay, We allow 17-year-old male drivers to drive. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we accepted no risk, they would not be driving because their accidents <laughs> are amazingly high. Right. Yep. So, where do you draw the line as a society for someone who can no longer drive? Well, I've met people with really profound losses of memory that are driving right down to the corner store and right back up again with no problems. And the family's like, oh, they're fine. They're fine to do that. Maybe they're a little worried. I've met other people with incredibly mild memory problems that have, again, no insight and are getting themselves into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that, that there is such a wide variety here. It's, you know, my next question for you was to ask you do you think there should be a special type of testing? 
um, for people with dementia? Do you think even the the normal tests that we take are, are they pertinent? Uh, they're pertinent in a, in a rough sense. Okay, so um, again, risk will increase as the cognition gets worse. But our bedside tests, our office tests, are, are not really measuring what people are doing out there. Because again, a lot of driving is not getting yourself into scary situations like at night or unfamiliar surroundings. Some people just have a natural ability, even in the later stages of the disease, to not do that. Okay, And I, mm -hmm. I think that has more sort of emotional um, limits that are on them, right? They have a healthy fear. Other people have none of that. So it's very tricky. Now, so should we be screening everybody um, with driving evaluations? Um, you know, I use third-party driving evaluations a lot. Um, it can really help. It can help be a kind of a tiebreaker between somebody who's adamantly, I want to drive, and someone who says, no, you should really restrict your driving and perhaps not drive at all. And so instead of me saying, based on capricious, no data, just by fiat, you should not be driving. You know, that's not going to do much good. So let's actually get them out on the road with a driving evaluation and see what happens. And I, I find those people to be very fair. Okay. I, I know that there are some opinions out there that, um, you know, the current tests aren't aren't really accurate, and I'll definitely get into that a little later, but I want to be very respectful of of your time um, so that I don't uh, don't tie you up too much. What do you think the medical professions, uh, professionals can do to really assist families in in this process, in this decision-making process? Well, I find myself advocating more for the patient in a lot of times. You know, the family is very concerned sometimes. And I say, no, you know, it sounds to me from talking to them that they're doing everything okay. And now if the family has cause for concern, there's scrapes on the car, they may have been driving with the person and noted they were blowing red lights or speeding, then there's definitely cause for concern there, right? But a lot mm -hmm. of times it's just the families believe, okay, Alzheimer's diagnosis, no driving anymore. And I, I don't know what you mean about the test. Um, the, the testing, the cognitive testing, does correlate with impairment. Mm-hmm. There's um well and I know Michael has uh, gone through some some different testing and and stuff and so we'll have that conversation because I haven't been through it and I'm not all that familiar with it and JD might have some information and and so might some of the others. In fact, um, well what I can do is why don't I do this? I'll pull Michael in right now and maybe I'm misspeaking. Um, but Michael, what are your thoughts about the current tests that are out there right now? Because I, I I believe you have taken some um, for driving. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, I, I'll tell you, my, my feeling is based on two different types of tests that I've seen. The first test that I was involved with was with NIH, where they sat you behind a computer-type screen. And in that particular test, you had to basically learn a lot of functionality that a person with Alzheimer's or dementia would have a problem with right off the bat because you had to learn how to use this computer and at the same time, learn to drive this car that's a computer. Uh, so in that particular instance, I, I, I feel that is completely flawed 
in, in the way and the design they're testing people. On the other hand, I had the opportunity to go down to Moss Rehab and spend a couple of hours with the uh, gentleman there who was kind enough to spend time and educate me on their process. Now, their process was much, much better. However, again, I thought there were some issues there. For example, the first thing is you are not able to drive your own car, and the reason you can't drive your own car is because of insurance reasons that they're not covered. Uh, God forbid, I guess there's an accident. So you have to drive another car that they provide to you, and that car is really designed for mobility for people who maybe have different types of handicaps. So therefore, there's all kind of extra gadgets involved in this particular vehicle that I think would interfere to the average person who may have AD or some type of dementia. Uh, so that in itself would create a problem. The second thing I realized was that some of the tests that they offer that you have to take, which they decide whether you fail or pass, uh, is a test that I can tell you right off the bat, I know I fail. In fact, I fail miserably. And Dr. Weissman would probably notice, but it's it's a test that you have to draw on a piece of paper that it starts out either with the letter 1 or A, and then you go to 2, the B, C, and you have to kind of draw this line to go from place to place. Well, if you fail this test, apparently this is a failure for being able to drive. Now, I can tell you, I've had tons of people drive with me, and they'll say I drive fantastic. Well, this test would have limited me from being able to drive. So I, I believe they're really trying to do their very best to try to limit people who have the who are no longer capable of driving, but at the same time, I don't think they found the right test that can really pinpoint us having a, an issue. And what they are pinpointing is people who have dementia or have some kind of problem, and they are definitely picking that out. But again, I don't think that correlates to driving. And I could be wrong about that. And I would love to hopefully get other people involved in the process. Uh, like such as the AMA, who's one of the key people who is behind these tests. I'd love to have more dialogue, but I think that's what is needed. I, I believe we want to take the people off the road who are unsafe, but I also believe that we don't want to go ahead and hamper the people who are still capable of driving just because we feel these tests are going to do something. Uh, another example, when I spoke with the tester, he indicated to me, well, one of the things I like to do is I like to keep the person busy talking while I'm driving. And I said, well, you know what? You couldn't do that with me today because I will refuse to talk with you. I do not want distractions anymore. I limit my speaking when I drive behind a wheel. I am very cautious. I try to focus because I now have to focus 110% on the road. So, therefore, that would create a problem. And, again, I, I don't think there's anything legally that they're supposed to be talking to you because they tell you when you're driving, you should not be distracted. Well, why is this person trying to communicate and trying to question you while you're driving? So there's some of the difficulties and issues that I see that come, you know, from somebody's test. And, again, I understand everybody's trying to do the very best here. Don't get me wrong. But I do believe we need to come out with better ways to do this testing so that the people who are still capable of driving are better at doing it and maybe learn better ways. Like, for example, I have learned, and this is something we should be teaching people, if I get in a situation I start getting a panic attack, 
That's what creates part of the problem with us, I think, with people with AD. We become panicky, and it, it's a snowball effect. Well, I have learned that I keep telling myself, no matter what situation I'm in, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. You know, I got lost in D.C., and I got to tell you, I, I was very close to be having a panic attack, but I kept telling myself, stay calm. That's what we should be doing. We should be teaching these people how to deal with this disease, to educate them, to keep themselves calm when these situations happen. Or, for example, you know, Kathy mentioned she doesn't drive because she gets her car's lost. Well, you know what? So do I. But you know what I've done? I now have a, a handicap license, and I now go to the handicap spot. I can always find the handicap spot. So they're, they're tools that we should be learned to use. Or, for example, you know, people get lost because they don't know how to get there. Well, I could get from point A to point B without a map or anything like that. Well, nowadays I needed to rely on GPS. So that's another tool we should be able to use. Or, for example, some of these people get lost and their caregivers can't find them. Well, they have tracking tools that we can put on us or on the vehicles to find us. So what I'm saying is let's use the tools that exist today to improve the process and educate us who have this disease so we can still function in society for as long as we can. I realize the day comes that we have to get our licenses pulled, but let that happen when we really need it to happen. Good, good points, Michael. Good points, Michael. Um, Dr. Wiseman, what do you what do you think regarding Michael's comments? Well, it sounds like he has shown self restraint, right? He's increased his focus. He limits his distractions with driving, and I think, at least in my community, um, one of the problems that Michael has been describing is that. Um, driving is seen as a yes-no problem, right? So you either can drive or you get your license pulled, and that is it. But we know that driving is a very complicated situation with tons of gray, right? So driving in the inner city at night, driving on a highway, is way different than driving in your local area during the daytime. Driving with a partner who is cognitively normal but may have some mobility issues or some problems driving because of, like, foot problems, right? So the person with Alzheimer's disease is their feet, is a lot different than driving alone. Driving with Garmin is way different than, again, driving alone. So there should be more limits in a graded way where someone will not get the license pulled, but maybe... The recommendation is no driving at night, no driving um, on highways. Though, those are the things that um, can really help this. And again, in my my area, that is recognized. So the people that I deal with, I feel pretty confident about um, their assessments because I re- read their assessments and they make sense. Although, of course. Once you get the ball rolling in this way and you send somebody to a driving evaluation, um, you know, from their side of the car, right, they're looking for any reason to just pull the plug because they're not willing to take any risk, right? Because if you think about their position, if something catastrophic happens, right, and there's a bad accident, and we've all heard those stories, right, Who's going to be blamed? They are, right? Because you just let this person drive. 
maybe with some restrictions, but still you let them drive. So they're looking to pull the license. That's for sure, right? And so they'll kind of sway and be biased on that way in that regard toward less ability. So that's why it's a difficult thing to even get started sometimes. Definitely. I um I I really appreciate your your insights. If there were, you know, two things that you could tell a family member about dementia and driving, what what would that be, Dr. Weisman? Well, the one thing I think is the most important thing is that the vast majority of people are already limiting themselves, okay? Now, family dynamics are difficult, but they might be putting up a brave front to you when you talk to them about it, but the reality is that they've already limited themselves. And the other thing is that this this system does not collapse overnight. People do not go from fully functional drivers to getting in a catastrophic failure, right? There have been signs along the way, minor fender benders, tickets, getting lost at night and calling in a panic. Those things have been happening, right? Otherwise, bad things do happen. We have to be careful, but, again, we have to permit some risk out there. Otherwise, it's going to be impossible. Uh, The data, I mean, if you think about Michael's point, how many licenses would you pull for no good reason, right? How many licenses will you pull to avoid one accident, right? Well, in somebody who's mildly a mild Alzheimer's patient, you'd be pulling probably 5,000 licenses to avoid one accident, which may not even be much of anything, right? You'd have a better number with, uh, again, 17-year-old male driver. Okay. Okay. Um well that makes that makes a ton of a ton of sense. I am gonna go ahead and um I, I just want to uh be able to, to let you scoot if you need if you need to go. Um because I'm gonna go ahead and pull in some of the others at this point, Doctor Wiseman. What is the best way for people to, to get in touch with you if they're interested? My um Practice is Abington Neurologic Associates, and we are in northern Philadelphia and part of Abington Memorial Hospital. Okay, wonderful. Great. Well, I thank you so much for your time. You're more than welcome to, to stay on the call and uh, the, the show if you can. And like I said, I want to pull in some of the others and, and get some of their opinions as well on this. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to go ahead and pull um, Mary in. And um, Mary, any any additional thoughts that you want to add? We only have like a half an hour left. I can't believe how time is just flying here. But I want to um, I want to make sure that we get back to everybody for some input. We've covered an awful lot of ground. And so, um, is there anything that you would like to add, or anything that you would like to tell a person? Maybe maybe I'll ask you this question: Is there anything you'd like to tell a person? who is recently diagnosed about dementia and driving. Let's go there. Okay. Well, you know, uh, to state the obvious, it's it's so complicated. Um, You know, as far as the diagnosis, there's so many different variations and everything else. I wouldn't want to tell somebody who was just diagnosed that their life ends there and their driving ends there. But um, 
but just the awareness factor is so important. And uh, for me, it was that small risk that we talk about of something happening could be an awfully big risk if somebody gets killed and could feel, uh, you know, could make a, a devastating illness even more devastating. And so for me, it was more the concern of could I live with accidentally getting into a could I you know get into a situation where I might get lost, get in a panic, make a sudden turn and hurt somebody seriously? And so that's part of my decision making was saying I need to set my own limits there. But as the doctor said, um, we do self limit, and 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 that is something I think it's important for people to recognize is we are able to at least to some degree and for some length of time self limit. Okay. Um, well, I I so appreciate you being part of the show here today. Um, your, your insights have just been very, very appreciative. And I, I think this conversation is going to awaken a lot of people in terms of dementia and driving. I also want to throw out if our audience has any questions, they can again um, pose a question into the um, the chat box or if somebody wants to call in live, I can try to pull them in as well for that. Thank you so much, um, Mary, for your, for your thoughts. If you can hang with us, that would be great. I'm uh, next. I want to go ahead and pull um, JD back into the conversation. How are you today, JD? You still with us? Oh, of course. Okay. Well, you know, we've we've covered an awful lot of ground here, um, but I think part of what we really need to talk about is how do insurance companies really look at this disease, and what are the risk factors? you know, for people with dementia and driving. There are so many things that we hear, but, you know, for me, I know I don't know what's true and what's not true. So are there companies out there that actually have restrictions for someone who's got uh, a diagnosis of dementia right now? Because I, I think most of us don't read our policies, you know? Uh, well, I think we need to start out with... Uh auto insurance 101 and explain that there are two basic uh, types of auto insurance policies. The uh, most common is what's known as a family auto policy, which says that the uh, insured person is whoever is named as the insured on the policy and any any resident members of the household are automatically covered when they're operating the vehicle. The second type of insurance, which we see a lot of marketing on, and that goes for lower premiums, is what's known as the named insured only type policy. So I think your listeners need to understand that uh, the policy that they buy uh, should be a family-style policy. If you buy the named insured only type policy, it means exactly that. If um, the wife uh, gets insurance on the family car and the husband gets behind the wheel and is involved in an accident, 
if the husband is not named on the policy specifically as an insured, then there is no coverage. Not only no coverage for any liability that may arise out of an incident, but also no coverage for physical damage on the vehicle itself. So you're going to wind up paying for the repairs yourself. So I encourage people to, when they are shopping for auto insurance, make sure that they get the family-style policy. Secondly, I think our uh, listeners should understand that uh, even if you do have uh, AD, you do have coverage, especially on the family-style policy. So just the fact that you may be a diagnosed AD uh, patient, the fact that you're involved in an accident, and it may be your fault, coverage is still there. The insurance company will pay for the repairs to your vehicle, repairs to the other party's vehicle if it's your fault. So there's no distinction. However, it should be noted that when an adjuster, and I'm talking uh, claims adjuster, not just the appraiser that goes out and puts dollar figures to the repair cost, but the adjuster is the individual who does the accident investigation. And if the adjuster, after getting a copy of the police accident report and interviews the uh, driver of the insured vehicle, which typically takes uh, effect over the phone, it's a recorded statement, if there is any indication that we may have an insured who has diminished capacity for whatever reason, reasons including AD, uh, that adjuster is obliged to fill out what is generically known as an underwriting advisement form, which is sent over to the underwriting department. Now, I'm using the term underwriter as an in-house employed underwriter. That's his title. Don't get it confused with uh, an insurance agent who likes to call themselves underwriters. This notice gets sent to the in-house underwriter who pulls the file and reevaluates the circumstances, reevaluates whether or not they're going to continue on this uh, policy. Most states have consumer protection laws where the insurance companies have uh, severe restrictions on canceling a policy. However, it does allow the insurance company to exclude a specific driver from coverage. The agent is notified, the policyholders are notified, so that in the event that there is a second involvement uh, or any subsequent involvement, the policyholder is on notice that uh, if it turns out to be the excluded driver that was operating the vehicle, there will be no coverage. So that's something that uh, needs to be made aware amongst the AD community. Ah, goodness, I'm rambling on here. Let's go to another question. Let me start. Sure. 
<laughs> sure. No, that's I, I I think that that's good to know because a lot of times I, I think we assume, you know, we have a certain type of policy and we might not. So I think that it's it's very very good. Um, now, if someone is in an accident and it's investigated that, you know, it's found out that during this accident somebody was um, disoriented and then they decide to dig a little deeper and go into medical files and find out that somebody does have dementia, would that be an issue? Would they Could they be excluded or would, if they thought it was an issue, could they exclude them or revoke coverage for future? How would that work? Well, there's uh, the scenario you pose has two elements to it. First off, when an underwriter uh, orders an investigation, a, a, a follow-up investigation into the circumstances surrounding their policyholder, there's two issues here. Number one, uh, the policy contract, and it is just that, a unilateral contract with terms, conditions, limitations, whereas, wherefores. I mean, it's a contract. One of the terms of your policy contract require the policyholder to cooperate with the insurance company in any investigation. That means that if the insurance company approaches their policyholder and requests the policyholder sign a medical authorization form, uh, the policyholder is obliged to sign it or the policy is done. They'll cancel the policy. Now, what that medical authorization form does is permit the insurance company to contact uh, physicians or any health care provider with whom the policyholder has been in contact, and it allows the insurance company to access the medical records of that policyholder. And if AD uh, comes up, the underwriter will probably, and I'm guessing here, but probably have the same knee-jerk reaction that I had when I was in early stages of discussions with uh, Michael Ellenbogen. You're going to, the individual is going to be excluded from the policy. Um, they could also do further investigation, but insurance companies are not known for expending a lot of money in doing thorough investigations, so knee-jerk reactions can be anticipated. And, of course, the impact on the family when they get that notice from the insurance company that, uh, you know, dear Mary Jones, uh, henceforth be notified that driver Joe Jones is no longer covered on your policy, and it goes into a lot of legalese and ex explanation. But it's uh, uh, usually intended to be the impotence that pushes the family into taking Joe's keys so that he doesn't drive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm going to go ahead and pull some of the others in just because our time is going so quickly here. Um, but, J.D., how would people get a hold of you if they had uh, more questions for you? What would you like to give them for contact oh, information? You, you could always Google my name, J.D. Howard, or you can go to the website, 
we use an acronym for our business name. Our business name is Insurance Consumer Advocate Network. The acronym is ICAN, and our website is ICAN2000.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today. I'm going to pull Jack back into the conversation here, Jack, just because um, your wife uh, had had an accident and see if you have any comments or thoughts that you want to add to the conversation here. Um, the accident was pretty definitive. It was a, it convinced everybody it was time. Um, I just think that, you know, Alzheimer's and, and dementia are so idiosyncratic and appear in people so differently uh, that everything's got to be decided on a case-by-case basis. Uh, I think the question ultimately is, would you allow your grandchildren to be driven by the person who's been diagnosed? And if you're not comfortable or feel safe that that's the case, maybe that's you know the ultimate decision maker. Uh, you'll ride with the... the, the You'll ride with the person, but maybe you wouldn't want your grandchildren in that car with them. So, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, the, the 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 fear that harm could be done, someone could be killed, maimed, injured, uh, is is a, is a powerful uh, stimulant. Uh, you know, you can you could always replace the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, the, there's that point of knowing when is enough enough, and we we found that 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 that, that place very definitively okay well great well thank you again so much for for joining us jack really appreciate your insights from from a care partner i i think it's very very valuable um terry i'm going to pull you back into the conversation here too and i want to hear if you've got any any thoughts um from this conversation that you would like to share anything that came to mind offhand um well, I wish I had the solution, but I think it's a very complex one, obviously. Um, and I think it's like like a couple of you have said, um, dementia is a very individual disease. So therefore, I think the decision when to stop driving is going to have to be a very individualized um, process to make that decision. Um, but I do strongly feel that if you're experiencing any doubt yourself, even if you don't have a lot of self-awareness, um, because of the disease, some of us have less self-awareness and some of us still maintain that. Um, you know, if you or your family notices that you're definitely decreasing your driving, distance, um, things that would have been your normal, speed, um, that's obvious indication that you're not driving as well as you used to. Um, so, and I think that it's, you know, like, um, the gentleman just said about, we'll do no harm. Um, I think that was the big decision for me was the way the neurologist put to me was, how will you feel if you're in the car and you have one of those moments where your reaction's not right or you hit the gas instead of the brake and there's a child in the way? And I knew that that was something I would not want to ever have to live with. So, you know, I would rather see, I guess, if if it had to go one way or another, pull someone's license um, when maybe they could still drive reasonably for another 6 to 12 months or what have you, um, or let someone continue to drive. I, I think 
someone else's life would be a it was a very big factor to consider. Um, and I know that losing the independence is is difficult and probably more difficult for some people than others. But um, that's that's just kind of how I feel about it. I think if if you're in any doubt or you're seeing those signs that your driving is definitely changing to the point where you're self limiting, that's a strong indication that you maybe look, need to look harder um, with the help of your family or whoever that you would trust um, to make that decision with you and to try to make that decision yourself um, to stop driving. Great. Well, thank you again so much for joining us, Terry. I really appreciate all your all your thoughts and input there. I am going to um, scroll back up here, and I'm going to pull um, Mary in one more time. And um, Mary, can you give us any uh, like one pointer that you would give a a family member who's who's struggling with this? What would be the one thing you would say to that family member who's really struggling with this decision? Uh, I'd say ride with them. I think one of the reasons, you know, I mean, check frequently. I, one of the reasons I gave up driving when I did was because I had no outside uh, indicators. I was, you know, I did not want to go past that point where I realized I was a hazard, and so, mm-hmm. and and so, and and that was because I didn't have someone living with me, maybe to periodically assess how I was doing. Um, but I, I would think it's if you if you're going to have a loved one with, uh, you know, it, it certainly. Your license does not have to go with the diagnosis of dementia, but it also makes sense to have someone who can um, objectively, you know, watch watch your driving and, and maybe be aware that there are things you may not be aware of. Yeah. Well, and I, I thought it was interesting, too, and Michael had said that, you know, he's really kind of a better driver now. He slows down. He pays more attention. He's more alert um, than what he used to be. He used to, you know, drive a little closer to cars. He used to drive a little faster. And so I think as family members, you know, we need we need to look at that thing. How how do how do we as a society drive normally? You know, because I think sometimes we try to when we're looking at testing somebody, we hold them up to standards that we ourselves don't live by. And right, wrong, or indifference, I do think that that's something that has to be seriously, seriously looked at. So thank you again so much for joining us and your insights today, Mary. Really appreciate it very much. Thank you. Um, Kathy, how about you? Any any uh, last-minute insights that you want to pass on to um, families or people with uh, Alzheimer's or maybe professionals? Maybe there's something you want to direct specifically to them about driving and dementia. I would I I agree with um, the comments as far as families getting involved with driving. If the you know if there's a situation, most especially if you have someone with the diagnosis that feels apprehensive that uh, you know someone is is going to be in the car with them. Uh, maybe because they're feeling defensive about their driving skills, something they, you know, they can always, uh, you know, and this is for the family members. Um, it's not to say that uh, uh, if if you know where they're going, follow them or have someone else follow them. 
uh, that when they least know it, uh, because after all, it, and, and that may sound underhanded, but the whole issue here is of protection for them and others. So uh, just follow them and observe uh, to see, you know, do, do they do they know where they're going? Do they park straight? Are they weaving in and out? Do they use their turn signals and things of that nature? Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for for sharing and spending so much time with us. I really appreciate appreciate all of our panels here so much today, panel members. Thank you, Kathy. Um, Matt, I'm going to go ahead and pull you in. Um, how do people get a hold of you if they would like some help in having this conversation? Lori, the uh, website address is keepingussafe.org. And a toll-free telephone number is 877-907-8841. Again, the website is keepingussafe.org, and the toll-free number is 877-907-8841. Okay. And any last-minute advice that you want to give in this end of the show here? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, First, I'd like to mention to the... uh, panelists that are afflicted with Alzheimer's disease and or dementia to one degree or another, that they've done an excellent job of policing themselves and their own driving. And when I go and give talks, um, yeah, I usually try to find someone in the audience that has done just that. But uh, to me, uh, those are the heroes amongst us, the ones that realize that um, quite possibly I'm getting to the point where I'm putting either myself or someone else in danger. And as difficult a decision this is for me, I need to do the right thing. And uh, so I really do commend uh, everybody on the line today that has given up driving or cares for someone that's given up driving because I know that's an unbelievably tough decision to make. Definitely. Well, thank you for all you're doing. I really appreciate uh, what what you're doing to help families. And again, for taking the time, you know, two hours is a lot of time for all of these people to come together. I I just so appreciate it because I think it's such an important conversation to have. And needless to say, we we aren't here to hand over an answer specific because this disease is very unique to all. So again, thank you for your time today, Matt. Thank you, Michael, I'm going to go ahead and pull you in for the the wrap-up. We literally have just about six minutes left, and um, there's a couple of questions that um, I would just like your thoughts on because I don't have time to, to get everybody's. But what what are your thoughts about people carrying identification, not just for themselves, but in terms of emergency contact and, and what their car looks like if they are going to be driving? Do you think that that's I, something that, that people need to be conscious of? Without a doubt, Lori, I think that's a must today, especially for people like us. We, we need to have that kind of information with us at all the time uh, because – my God, you know, like people tell you, you never know what day you're going to just suddenly forget and not know. And it will happen, uh, you know, as it does with most people. So I think it's important that we're prepared for that day. Great, great. And then as far as testing goes, you just gave us some wonderful insights as far as the tests. Like, you know, if I'm taking it on a computer, it's not a real car. 
You know, now I have to deal with learning a new system. That's one of the deficits with dementia is it's difficult to do. Um, So it's brilliant and as um, stimulating as these tests might be, there are definitely some downsides that you pointed out, or even with them conversing with you when you're trying to, to drive. So hopefully people listening to this show are going to, you know, come up with some ways to resolve this. Uh, the show is not meant for us to answer all the answers, but really to get the conversation going and to push out even more questions so that we can deal with it in, in a better, much, much better light. How do you think communities need to adapt um, to people as they as they age? And then also with dementia, not being able to drive. Um, How do you feel communities need to step up to the plate to be able to serve those that live in their community? Well, for one thing, I think the laws need to change, especially for the people who are uh, dealing with a younger onset who are under the age of 65. Many of these people don't qualify for the same uh, driving capabilities for such as like senior citizens who are at a certain age who are disabled they have the rights to various vehicles uh, that are usually provided by the state to take them around from place to place, you know, for a fee. Well, we don't qualify for things like that. So that, that's the very first thing I think that has to change. Uh, and, again, I'm speaking for Pennsylvania, so I don't know if that, uh, how that impacts across uh, the U.S., but we do need to find maybe some volunteers uh, that can possibly help us out in, in that, you know, you know, who are belong to churches and synagogues and things like that that are willing to help people like us to get to our appointments and do things like that. Because, again, some of our caregivers are too busy working, and they can't be, you know, entertaining us, uh, you know, uh, to to get out of the house and things like that. So I I think we need to make more dementia awareness and how our needs are so we still can live life to the fullest, you know, while we're dealing with this and struggling with this disease. I I so agree. I had... uh... One woman contacted me. It was really interesting from uh, the the feature that KSCP did on me. And here she was a past client of mine when I was in real estate, and her husband had dementia. And she called and she said, I would like to volunteer. I would like to help someone who's who, who just needs a helping hand, needs, and if it's transportation or if it's, you know, doing, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't make any difference. I just want to volunteer, and I thought, how how beautiful is that? And that would be a perfect fit um, for for what we're talking about. But I think we just all need to be so much more connected and aware that, um, it, and which is tough in this uh, me me society, that we really have to look at others' needs and how can we serve. Um, how can we make everybody's life better and more compatible? I, I can't thank you enough, Michael, for, for pulling this show together because you really pulled the show together. And I, I think this was an incredible conversation we had. I think the two hours totally blew by, and we could probably talk about this for eight um, because you know we had a list of questions, and many of them we just couldn't get to. But it was so important, I think, to hear the variety of voices um, that you were able to pull together for the panel. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again, Lori, for doing this. Not not a problem. Any last minute we've got, we're down to about a minute and a half. Any last minute comments that you want to say to people? 
Yeah, I, I guess the one thing I, I definitely want, I, I want to encourage people to look in their states and try to change the laws, especially the states that have the automatic, uh, I guess, removal of your license the minute you have an AD diagnosis. I think those states, we need to question them and, you know, to figure out better methods for us. Uh, also, I, again, I, I cannot stress what's already been said by many of these people today already is the caregivers need to ride with us multiple times throughout the year. I'd say at least a couple times a month while we're driving. They should have a decision factor in our driving capability in case we're not able to see it. But that's the way we should be able to eventually get our license pulled because we're no longer capable of driving and they see that. But again, they have to be careful because, as I said, my wife was picky at me for a while and it wasn't until we had that dialogue. So sometimes you can become, I guess, uh, you know, picky just because you happen to be that way. So I, I think we're right out of time here, Lori. Yep, we're we're getting close here. I, I again, I thank all of our panelists from the bottom of my heart and all the listeners. Um, we are going to actually continue this conversation on dementia chats, and I put that if you scroll up to the top of your chat box, there is a link, or you can always go to the website or the blog um, to get that link, or our Facebook page as well. But we very much um, appreciate this conversation, and we would love for you to help spread the word of this conversation by liking it, sharing it, emailing it. Let others have this conversation. Thank you all and have a brilliant week. We'll talk soon. Bye now. Bye. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.